Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Dr. Elaine Norton has done some pretty amazing things in the world of genetics research. And one of the most recent that she has embarked on is studying the heritability of equine metabolic syndrome, which for hoof care providers listening, you're probably pretty familiar with what that is. We know that horses with metabolic issues are at a high risk for laminitis and founder, and that can take up a lot of our job seeing horses in pain due to these issues. I first saw Dr. Lane Norton when she presented at the No Laminitis Conference in 2021, and I reached out to her to ask if she would be willing to share some of her research on the podcast, and she agreed. I guess we can just get started. Thank you again so much for being willing to do this because um, I attended the No Laminitis online conference last year and I thought your presentation was so great. A lot of it, I think, was like a little bit over my head, (laughs) but I, I think that there's a lot of information that we can take away from your work that can help hoof care providers and owners and veterinarians to sort of understand what they're dealing with when they're coming to horses that are are struggling with metabolic issues or, you know, especially in my line of work, laminitis as a result of those issues. I would love to kind of talk through some of that a little bit. So why don't we start with, uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, your journey into studying metabolic syndrome in horses? Yeah, my journey could probably take up an entire hour of your time. So I'll try to keep it abbreviated. And you can tell me when I've become too long winded on all of this. But you know, I kind of started out as the typical horse crazy little girl who knew I was going to be a veterinarian by the age of five, particularly a large animal veterinarian. Like I told my mom, that I needed to start getting donations from the family so that I could afford vet school when I was in kindergarten. So I was very much so on that path. And as I got into veterinary school, I was really thinking I was going to be a horse surgeon. I liked the idea of petting colics, doing orthopedic surgery. But in our medicine classes, I found out that my brain really ticks like an internist. I really like those intricate mechanisms of how the endocrine system is so interconnected. And it really kind of toned into my brain as a type 1 diabetic, how similar metabolic syndrome was to diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. And so that automatically triggered me, that association between being a diabetic and then seeing the same struggles that our horse and our horse owners go through. And so Moved on and did an internship at Southwest Equine in Scottsdale and knew by that point I was definitely not meant to be a surgeon and that I was meant to be an internist. So did a residency at Auburn University, but was still thinking, you know, I'm probably going to go into private practice afterwards. But I was very, very blessed to find out that my residency program was attached with a master's program. So it was requirement. To, to finish this residency. And I fell in love with research, particularly with genetic research. And so I was doing a project on the identification of a genetic mutation in a cult that had a bleeding disorder. And so 
that made me think about how much more we could do with genetics and how much we could actually answer some of these questions that we had. There's nothing more frustrating as a veterinarian than not knowing what we're treating or not knowing why we're treating something the way that we are. And to be like, hey, works in humans, let's try it in horses or it works in dogs. So let's just throw it this way and see what happens. And so not only could I help animals in a larger way by becoming a researcher, a veterinary researcher in particular, but I could also answer all of those nagging questions that I have about why, why are things happening and why are they occurring? And so I ended up applying and getting a position as a PhD student at the University of Minnesota under Molly McHugh. And it just so happened that she was kicking off a metabolic syndrome project and it aligned perfectly with what I really liked and my goals. And so that became my project in her, in her lab was doing the genetics of equine metabolic syndrome, particularly in Welsh ponies and Morgan horses. And that extended into a postdoc also with, in conjunction with the University of Minnesota and the University of Arizona. And now I'm faculty here continuing to study metabolic syndrome at not only the genetic, but a multi-omics level. So looking at multiple areas of how metabolic syndrome is being affected, whether it be how the genes described, how they're being regulated, how they're being turned on and how they're being turned off, as well as how we are actually pre-programming the fetus when we're dealing with a mare that has metabolic syndrome and how that affects the foal and as it grows into an adulthood and its risk on metabolic syndrome. Yeah, that's really amazing. And and I know that your study, specifically the one that you you know did the presentation on, like you said, focused on Welsh ponies and Morgans. And is that just because you had a large population to look at for those two breeds? So we particularly focused on those two because We've known for a long time or suspected for a long time that there is this genetic component to metabolic syndrome. Like as clinicians and as owners, we know, okay, like in this line, we have more offspring with metabolic syndrome. And within this breed, there are higher risks of individuals with metabolic syndrome. So there's this kind of line component, and then there's also this larger breed component. And so breeds that we know are higher risk for metabolic syndrome include ponies. I mean, ponies are like the poster child for metabolic syndrome. (laughs) Um, So ponies for sure. Morgan horses is another one. Arabians is another really high risk group. Um, Tennessee walking horses versus some of those low risk groups, which are the quarter horses and the thoroughbreds. And so it's not that those quarter horses and thoroughbreds don't get metabolic syndrome. We just don't see it as high of a prevalence as we do and other breeds. And so population-wise, you're right, we had a whole lot of Morgans that owners were willing to allow us to come out and sample, as well as Welsh ponies. The Welsh pony community in general is incredibly supportive of doing this research. They know that it's a problem and they want to find answers. And so we were able to get a lot of owners enrolled into the study because the biggest thing with genetic studies is it takes a lot of horses to answer these questions. So sometimes when we're thinking about animal research studies, we're like, oh, you know, you need 10 horses or maybe, you know, 20 if you're doing a really good study or a big study. Genetics, we need like 300, 500 and above that to really be able to parse these genetics out. 
Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, a lot of us can look at certain breeds and be like, oh man, they really look like they're metabolic. You know, you can just kind of yep. assume that these breeds have metabolic issues just because we see so many issues with them. Just, you know, day-to-day like laminitis, you know, really easy keepers, that kind of thing. So this is great that you actually have the proof now. Like there's actually a study to show that there is statistical significance in the fact that these are, like we can say that there is a genetic component. So, you know, can you kind of expand on that a little bit about what your findings tell us in relation to equine metabolic syndrome? Absolutely. And again, I can get long-winded on these when I'm talking, so just shut me up when I'm going too long. So one of the first questions that we asked when looking at metabolic syndromes and then genetics is we know that there's an environmental component. Like there's no doubt about diet and exercise is a big impact in metabolic syndrome. But there's also this idea of these genetics. And so the first question we asked is like, how much is genetics even contributing to metabolic syndrome? Like if it's only contributing a small amount, then who really cares? Okay, it's interesting that genetics is there something to think about, but really let's just put all of our research dollars into the environment. And so that was the first question that we asked, how much is genetics contributing to metabolic syndrome? And we answer that question by doing something called heritability. And so often when I'm trying to explain heritability, I like to use height as an example. And so height is something that we consider as highly heritable. So about 80% heritable, which means If your mom and your dad are short, you're probably going to be short. And if your mom and your dad are tall, you're probably going to be tall. Genetically, you're going to be more prone to those heights. However, if your nutrition and your environment are not good, then you are not going to be able to be as tall as your genetics could potentially program you to be. So yes, huge amount. Your mom and your dad contribute mass majority of how tall you're going to be, but 20% of that variability is what your nutrition is. So when your mom and your dad tell you eat your vegetables and drink your milk, they're 100% correct and as contributing to how tall you're going to be. And so with metabolic syndrome, we actually looked at several different traits. And so metabolic syndrome is very complex. There's insulin regulation, there's glucose, there's how your fatty acids respond to all of this. And so it's not as simple as saying a horse, yes, or no, what we call a binary trait. Instead, we broke it up and we said, what is the heritability of baseline insulin or insulin that you would do as a screening test? What is the heritability of having high fatty acids? What is the heritability of having these high inflammatory markers? And what we found out is that genetics is contributing a lot more than we previously even hypothesized that it would be. So it's moderately to highly heritable, some of these traits being up to 50% heritable, some of them being as high as 80% heritable, meaning that your genetic risk is the same as how tall you're going to be, which is pretty powerful of a statement to say when we're talking about genetics. And so what was really cool is that there was similarities between the Welsh ponies and the Morgan horses in how heritable some of these traits were, but there were differences also. So a trait specifically baseline insulin, was highly, highly heritable in the Welsh ponies, around 89% heritable, whereas in the Morgans, it was about 50%. And so when we're thinking about what makes this difference between these two groups, what we know is that there's differences in what sort of genetic risk factors a breed might have. 
So some of these risk factors are going to be shared and some of them are going to be unique and different. And so the Welsh ponies in particular have a mutation or a risk factor that we have found that's not only contributing to their height, but it's also contributing to their insulin levels that has a very strong effect and therefore explains why they had a higher heritability, if, if that makes sense. And so that was kind of part of the story is just how much is genetics contributing? And again, we found that it was contributing a lot. And so the next question became, okay, so genetics is contributing a lot. That's super cool. But where are these genetic risk factors? Like, it's great to know genetics is high, but now what are we going to do about it? So our next step was to do what we call a genome-wide association study. And that is where we take the genome and we break it up into SNPs. And we ask, okay, which areas of the genome are actually contributing to metabolic syndrome? And so I like to think about this as like a big tree. So if I was to have a big tree and space out, you know, all of the branches being the chromosomes and then the leaves being the variants or the genetic mutation, genome-wide association studies will tell us what branch or what area of the branch that genetic risk is harbored in. It doesn't tell us specifically which one it is but it helps us to narrow down the area of the genome. So then it kind of comes a little bit of gene sleuthing after that to figure out which of those genes in that area are contributing. And so from there, we found that hundreds of regions of the genome are contributing to metabolic syndrome. So what does that mean? And so in the Morgan horses, we had, you know, about 150. In the Welsh ponies, we had a little over 200. And so that means that equine metabolic syndrome first and foremost, is not a single gene disease. So when we think about single gene diseases in horses, we think about, you know, PSSM type 1, which has a genetic test you can do, SCIDS, which is severe combined immunodeficiency. We think about HYPP, glycogen branching enzyme deficiency. All of these you can test and say yes or no. That's a single gene disease and that either foal has it or that adult has it or doesn't have it. Metabolic syndrome is more complicated, and that means that it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have all of these genetic risks, but it's how many do you have that can contribute to your risk. That's a lot of words to say that it's complicated and it's additive, which means that an individual's risk is going to differ based on how many and how impactful those genetic alleles are, those genetic alleles are. Because it, it's more than just one factor, does that mean it's not something that we could like eventually breed out of a breed because there's too much contributing to the risk factor for EMS? Absolutely, yes. We will never breed EMS out of our population. The reasoning behind that is if we were to try to find a stallion and a mare that had no genetic risk allele, and absolutely none. Uh, for one, good luck. <laughs> We're probably not going to be able to find that individual. But our breeding population would become so small that we would cause more genetic problems than just continuing to have it in the population. So I think about, do you, have you ever heard about the Royal Isle Wolves? I don't think so. So the Royal Isle Wolves, it's a kind of a cool story. So the Royal Isles, and probably butchering the name, but it's this, it's this national park that is in the middle of Lake Superior. And so there's really no connection between the wolves being able to pass across the Lake Superior to be able to integrate and interbreed. 
So unfortunately, there was so much inbreeding going on that they were actually dying out because you start to get chromosomal abnormalities. You start to lose positive selection for alleles that might improve immunity or reproduction, things that are very natural and occur very frequently in our population. And so the wolves were in danger of becoming, dying out on the island. And so, oh gosh, the first year I was in Minnesota, this is an Arizona desert rat that moved to Minnesota. And it was the coldest winter they'd had in 50 years to the point that I don't think we reached above negative 35 for like a month straight. It was brutal. But because it was so cold, it was the first time in 50 years that Lake Superior completely froze over. And it allowed some of those wolves from northern Minnesota and from Michigan to actually be able to cross over and begin to interbreed with the wolves on Royal Isle. And so I don't know if they've done the follow-up to see whether or not the population has improved, but that was the biggest hypothesis was that that freezing over had actually would allow that population of wolves to survive. And so if we were to try to do something not similar, but in a lot of ways parallel, where we'd reduce the breeding population so much to be able to try to breed out EMF, we would actually start to cause other problems and ones that might be more severe than what we're currently dealing with. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't do strategic breeding. Like strategic breeding is important. And what I say by that is, okay, yes, it's important to, once we get the genetic test, to genetically test these horses and say, okay, this horse has a ton of high-risk alleles. It actually showed clinical signs when it was five years old. It started having issues with laminitis when it was six. Let's not breed that particular horse. Or if we do need to breed it for some reason, Let's breed it with this mare over here that has a bunch of low-risk alleles or low to moderate, and so that we can start to taper down how many high-risk alleles the foal will have. So that's complicated, and it's going to take a lot of consultation with veterinarians and equine geneticists to be able to make these very smart and strategic breeding decisions. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about tapering down alleles because like for me as a hoof care provider, my first thought is always laminitis, especially with these breeds. And if there's a chance to have them have a lower risk of laminitis, that would be great. In fact, you know, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about how your study ties into like what this means in terms of laminitis and hoof issues. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, very complex, right? <laughs> There's a lot of environment. There's a lot of weight that goes into, you know, horses that are more obese tend to have higher issues. There's temperature. There is, there's a ton that goes into what we call hyperinsulinemic laminitis or laminitis that has been due to a horse that has metabolic disease versus other causes like colic, endotoxemia, injury, things along those lines. And so how does the study roll into it? Well, there's a couple of different things. Uh, We are looking specifically at some of the genetic risks that might help to tie in the reason why. So looking at what we call candidate genes. So candidate genes might be something that is related to keratin or to hoof growth that could explain, okay, in this particular line, there's a genetic allele that changes the way that the lamina are integrated together that causes it to be more prone to damage from hyperinsulinemia. And so let's see if we can particularly drive this out or not breed for this particular risk allele to decrease the risk. 
overall, though, besides just finding specific genetic variants that are contributing, the biggest key is identifying these horses before they develop laminitis. And the reasoning behind that is that we know that our diagnostic tests right now are not perfect. Sometimes we miss horses that have EMS at an earlier stage because we're not seeing those high peaks in insulin that we expect when they're later. Or we're not even diagnosing them until after they develop laminitis. And once they develop laminitis, they have a higher risk in the future of developing it again or potentially, as you know, not recovering from it and continually having painful issues from that. And so what my research is really geared for is finding that genetic test so that we can identify those individuals with high-risk alleles or those that have high-risk laminitis alleles to be able to change their management before they develop the clinical signs. And that is very, very important. Yeah. And I think that's amazing because, you know, we always say like prevention is the best cure, quote unquote, to laminitis, because, you know, there's so much that we know now that we didn't even know 10 years ago, at least in the hoof care world about, you know, diet and environment and movement and exercise and all this stuff that we can do apart from just trying to chase after the feet. So to be able to, yeah, to be able to identify horses that are at a higher risk is it's kind of an exciting idea, at least to me. I mean, as, as someone who's seen devastating results from laminitis. And just to have owners, I think, you know, recognize that risk and take it maybe a little bit more seriously. Absolutely. And it's hard because, as, as we know, this is a devastating disease, but it's really hard to explain that, right? Like, if metabolic syndrome was just about cute, fat ponies, like... <laughs> an easy keeper went great, right? Like cute fat pony, I can snuggle with you and I don't have to feed you as much as so you're cheaper. But it's so much more than that. And I think the importance of owners recognizing that is is imperative, especially when we're talking about like why do we care about doing this genetic test and why are we so strict with our care and our management. Metabolic syndrome is not something that we can cure. It's something that is a constant management issue. And it's something that we have to recognize that once they develop metabolic syndrome, this is a lifelong process. It doesn't matter if their blood values become within reference range. That's great. That means that you are doing a fantastic job on helping the management side of metabolic syndrome. But with that genetic risk and with that predisposition, it means that it's a lifelong management lifestyle. It's a lifestyle change versus a cure that unfortunately is not going to happen. I would love for them to cure type 1 diabetes. That would be fantastic. I'd love to cure metabolic syndrome, but it's a management issue for sure. Yeah. And honestly, that was going to be one of my next questions. And you just answered it is that, you know, I see some people who say like, oh, I got my horse's blood work back and it's so good. Their insulin's down. So look, we've cured their insulin resistance. And it's sort of like this false, in my opinion, it's kind of like giving themselves a false sense of security. Like, oh, because we got it to a good point right now, it means it's all done. But that's not, it's just not the case. And I wish it were. But yeah, like you said, it is a lifelong management of those horses. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish there was a cure. Um, there's, there's not. And so as soon as those horses go back to their previous routine, you're not exercising them anymore. You put them back out on pasture. They're going to have the same problems and potentially even worse. Right. Yeah. And so I guess my next question is, 
you've found these high-risk alleles in Welsh ponies and Morgans. Can you then search for those? Like, is it possible to look for those in other breeds and apply this same information to more groups of horses than just those breeds? Yes, absolutely. So currently, what we're doing is we're expanding into Arabian horses. That is, again, one of those other high-risk breeds to figure out which ones that we've already identified are shared, and then also which ones are unique to the Arabian horses. And so in the future, when I'm daydreaming and nightdreaming about what this genetic risk panel is going to be looking like, it's going to be a combination of shared and individual risk. And so if you submit a blood sample for analysis and it's an Arabian horse, you're going to get a result back that are going to show you, okay, these are the ones that are shared across multiple breeds. Your horse has this sort of relative risk for these ones, as well as which ones are just specifically in the Arabians. And so that's going to actually add a lot of information because, again, like we talked about, the Welsh ponies have the specific one that's just in the Welsh ponies. It's not going to be important for me to know if the Arabians have it because it's not found in their breed, but it's very, very important because it's a high-risk allele for me to know if it's in the Welsh ponies. And so right now we're moving into Arabian. In the future, we've got some ideas of being able to move into, of course, our other high-risk breeds, but potentially using a more diverse panel of, of horses to be able to find these across-breed ones that, again, are, are very important because it's going to get our larger population as well as those shared ones. Yeah, that's really great. And I'm so glad that you're able to expand that and look at other breeds because I think it's really useful information, which then, you know, makes me ask, like, can the everyday veterinarian or horse owner access these kind of tests? Or is this something that's going to be useful in everyday life soon? Or is it still sort of far off from being there? Yeah. I wish I could tell you that it's going to be in the next couple of years. Unfortunately, genetic testing takes a while. It takes a while to get them. And the biggest thing that is important is validation. And so we found these in the Morgan horses and we found these in the Welsh ponies, but we need to validate it in an independent population. And what I mean by that is we need to make sure that it's true across different Welsh ponies and different Morgans and different Arabians than what our initial test population show, because we get things like false positives and false negatives. And so this takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of research dollars. Um, it takes funding agencies and individual people that want to donate to be able to find these answers. And so research dollars can be very, very tight and that can slow down the process a bit. And so my grand scheme and my collaborators, Dr. Molly McHugh, is still a very large part of these projects and stuff would be to see something that comes out within the next 10 years, which is not something that a lot of people want to hear because that's a long time. But it's something that we want to make sure is going to help the community. So, you know, five to 10 years down the line, we'll start to be able to have these genetic tests that make the important decisions that will help more populations than just a single breed. And that's incredibly important. We've got, you know, we could be put out a single gene, the one that we found in the Welsh ponies and have you spend your money and tell you whether or not it has that risk allele Absolutely. We could tell you whether your pony has that risk allele, but it's not going to give me a full picture. And it's not going to tell me exactly how much of that risk your pony has, except for this one allele. And so it's not important enough to be able to 
give that bigger picture. It's not, I don't want to say important, but it's just not going to give that bigger picture. It's not going to tell me exactly how much relative risk your horse has. And so it's important to validate all of these alleles and to look across the population. And unfortunately, that takes time. But again, we can kind of use this information now. Like, what can I do with it now? Great. Elaine, fantastic. You just told me it's going to take like almost a decade for me to get this information. Great. But what we know now is kind of what we were talking about before. If a horse is starting to show metabolic syndrome early age and has really significant myomonitis, like consider potentially not breeding that horse or breeding it with a horse that has a line that you would consider low risk, you know, one that's you know, 24 years old and has absolutely no signs of metabolic syndrome. Like let's start making these strategic breeding decisions earlier, even without having the actual data in front of us now that we know how much genetics is contributing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great takeaway. And I didn't even realize to think that way in terms of, you know, oh, this horse is a breed that would normally be predisposed to have some sort of, you know, easy keeper traits. But look, they're in their 20s and they've been great. Like they would be great <laughs> breeding candidate. <laughs> that totally makes sense. So thanks for putting it that way. I never really thought of it that way. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, honestly, this is really great information that I think a lot of people can take away from. I think that the biggest thing to me is the validation, like you were saying, that there is heritability to EMS. And it's something that you can actually say now instead of just saying, we think that this, you know, happens. It's cool that there's actually a study and it's and it's been published that shows that there is heritability. So I think that's exciting in itself, even if there's, you know, 10 more years until it's something that we can we can use in our everyday life. So I appreciate the work that you're doing and thank you for being willing to share it and for sharing it last year at the No Laminitis Conference. Oh, I, I'm so glad that you got to, to come and listen to that. It's, it's hard on Zoom because you never know how many people are there who get to listen. So I'm excited to hear that uh, that you enjoyed that talk. I absolutely love talking about this. Um, it's my passion. It's my life dedication. And so I'm just very fortunate that you reached out also. And I do... I have to do a shout out. I want to thank, of course, all of the owners that allow us to come out and sample the Welsh Pony Morgans and currently the Arabians. It's without these owners that we would not be able to do this. And I am just so appreciative of the owners that are as dedicated to figuring this out as I am and just want to thank them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so great that you were able to access so many horses and do such a, you know, a really kind of extensive study. And yep. so, yeah, that that's basically all the questions I had. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again for all your time. And I hope you have a great rest thank of your you, day. Yeah. You too. I'll talk Thanks. to you soon. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com. 